So we're beginning this new series looking at Revelation. We've got four weeks to do it. And I've told a few people this week, and um, there's been a mixed response. Um, I've been very excited, and no one else has, um, because it's Revelation and it's a bit confusing. I shall tell you why you should be excited. I shall tell you why you should even be um, thankful that we're reading, that we're studying the book of Revelation. And that is because by one interpretation of this book, the world was due to have ended on the 23rd of September, just a month and a half ago. So the good news is we're all still here. Um, Of course, depending on your, your interpretation of the rest of the book, that may mean you've missed the rapture, not traditionally considered good news. Um, But the bad news is that they've revised um, the end of the world and kind of kicked the end of the world can down the road an extra year. So you can pop it in your diaries now if you want. Get your phone out. The end of the world, 23rd of September 2018. It's going to be a blast. Don't miss it. Um, The book of Revelation is confusing. In fact, there are more interpretations of this book than any other book in the Bible. Because from its inception, from the moment it was released, people tried to understand exactly what all of this imagery meant. And there is so much of it. The problem is, it's very hard to understand where the polemic and symbolic begin and end. And there have been so many interpretations of that over, over the years. In fact, um, this year, or in fact this, this past week, we celebrated 500 years of Martin Luther. I say celebrated um, No one really took me up on my Reformation rave. Um, It was muted celebrations. But this this week we remembered 500 years of of, um, Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, which kind of was one of the inaugural moments in starting the Reformation. But he, this is what he said of Reformation. He thought Reformation should be taken out of the Bible. He said, Christ is neither taught nor known in it, so let's get rid of it. So it's strange that 500 years on, in a way of remembering him, we thought, let's, let's do a series based on that book, he, one of the books he wanted to get rid of. So what I need to do, um, I need to take you on a journey, or I'd like to take you on a journey. I would like to plant you in the shoes of the author, of John. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Um, first off, we know that he started writing in the 60s, This is when everything was hip and cool and the world was full of hope and love. And he finished writing in the 80s when it was a little bit more confusing and uh, and more strife. Um, For the record, I'm showing the congregation a picture of a a gentleman from the 80s with questionable dress sense and a splendid mullet. Um, But John, what do we know about John? And what I want you to do is I want you to fill his shoes, okay? So you... You become John. I'm going to tell you a little bit about yourself. Oops, I've skipped forward there. You now know more than you should. Um, so we don't actually know too much about John. We know that he didn't write the Gospel of John. We know he also didn't write the letters in the New Testament. We know this because the grammar in, in Revelation is not very good. It's a different writing style and his theology differs a little bit. Let's be honest, the theology in Revelation differs from most things. Um, but it differs from the Gospel. Um, We know that you're living on Patmos, though you do not live there. That's not where you were born. You're there because of the gospel. We don't know whether that's because of persecution. Possibly you fled. It may even be because you wanted to share the gospel with the the Greek island of Patmos. Um, We know that you're Jewish. We know this because you have a great grasp of the Torah. And through Revelation, you use lots of 
um, Old Testament language and imagery. So you're Jewish, you're writing in the 60s to the 80s. The book actually took over a decade to, to write. So it was something that he redacted and refined. Um, do we know anything more? That will do for now. What I'm going to do now, though, this is the tricky bit. I'm going to try and do this quickly. I'm going to give you a whistle-stop tour of 16 years. And these are 16 years through which John was writing. Um, but I hope that this, this should enlighten us all. And it will change your, pers your perspective of Revelation, I hope. Ooh, splash myself in the face. So, starting in 64 AD, remember, you're a Jew. You're living in the Roman Empire. In 64 AD, there is a great fire in Rome. It's called the Great Fire, and it burns for six days. Rome is almost completely destroyed, um, and the temple—sorry, uh, the temples are destroyed. Um, and then Nero, who's the emperor, he decides that the Christians are to blame. You are to blame. So Christians are persecuted in the most awful, heinous way. They are murdered for sports. They are rounded up, fed to lions. This is awful, awful persecution. Perhaps this is the moment that you fled to, to Patmos. That's in 64 AD. Then in 68 AD, um, Nero dies, which is kind of good news. We, we sigh a, a, a breath of relief, a, a sigh of relief. But 68 to 69 AD, in, in the wake of Nero, reports of his final days are mixed, actually. We don't actually, we're not entirely sure what happened. He may have committed suicide. The reports are hazy. And there are rumors that he's going to return, rumors that he did not commit suicide at all. So we're, we're fearful that Nero will come back. But in his place, there's a power struggle. And the entire empire is plunged into civil war. 68 to 69 AD is known as the year with four emperors. This is civil war across the empire. So first there's Galba, then Otho, then Vitellius, and then Vespasian. And they all, they all vie for power. Vespasian eventually wins out, and he holds on to power for 10 years until he dies. But it's his sons that I want, you to, what I want to tell you about. His oldest son, Titus, who is his heir, the next year, the year after the year of four emperors in 70, he invades Jerusalem. In fact, he sacks it. He's, first of all, he starves it. And then he smashes down the walls. And then he burns it to the ground. And the temple, the second temple, is raised to the ground, never to stand again. Not a single brick lay on another brick. The temple is destroyed. Here's a, here's a picture of that. And then in the same year, a monument, a, 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 a huge idea, it was a, a huge undertaking, but they took the plunder from Jerusalem and the treasure from the temple and they carried it to Rome. And with that plunder, they, they began to build this, a huge building to commemorate this moment, the moment that they sacked and destroyed Rome. So that's in 70 AD. Perhaps that's the moment that you fled. Um, Josephus, who's a first century um, historian, he estimates that 1.1 million people were killed during the sacking of Jerusalem, most of whom are Jewish. Another 97,000 Jews were enslaved or carried away. So perhaps this is the moment you fled to Patmos. Whizzing forward, 79 AD, now Titus is emperor. Another event that you probably would have heard of. Vesuvius erupts and it completely destroys Pompeii and Herculaneum. But this is God. This is God's wrath and power. God is angry with Rome 
and you've heard about it, you've observed it. Two great cities completely destroyed. The next year, there's another fire in Rome. Not as big as the first, but you fear the reprisals because you know what happened after the first time. Also in 80 AD is the year that the huge um, um, building to commemorate the sacking of Jerusalem is completed. And it's named after your greatest foe, the man you fear more than any other, Nero. It's named after a huge statue of him. It's Colossus um, Nero. I can't remember the the Latin for Nero. Let me find it in my notes. Um, Colossus Neronis. We know it as the Colosseum. And the Colosseum would become symbolic of all of, the, of, of Christian persecution. And it would be, again, a venue for much persecution. By this point, um, Titus's brother takes control of the, the empire, uh, a guy called Domitian. And he's a despot. He loves power. He seizes it from, from um, the, the Senate. So he, he rules as absolute ruler. He gives himself the titles of the venerable one, the father of the nation. And he, he gives himself the um, position of censor. That's where sense, our word censorship comes from. But the, the job of the censor was to act as the moral guide. So Domitian... No, <laughs> that's the wrong name. Yeah, no, Domitian is the censor. He's the moral guide. He's the guy you look up to and tells you what's right, what's wrong. So that's the scene. That's where you are. So you're a Jew. You're an exile. Remember, 1.1 million people in Jerusalem which is a tight-knit community, were murdered. You know people who were murdered. You have family who you have not heard from. You have friends who are missing. Others you know died. You're in Patmos. The world is coming to an end. And you realize now that you, the author, John, you're not writing about the end of the world as if you're looking forward and imagining what might happen. You're living through the end of the world. Revelation isn't just a book that's looking, it's not apocalyptic in that it's saying, this is what I think will happen. John knows what's happening. He's living through it. This is the apocalypse. The whole world is ending. The temple has been destroyed. His family and his friends are all dead. And now he's being tracked down. He's living in exile. Um, Apocalyptic is the first word of the book of Revelation. That's, apocalyptic means to look forward, but it's translated here, Revelation. Apocalypsis is, is the word in Greek. So what does all of this mean? What does it mean for us today? What can, we, what can we take from it? And why is the book of Revelation written in code? Well, I would like to suggest that it's not written in code at all. It's, in fact, the very opposite. It's a picture book. It's super easy to understand, rather than something that's, that's very tricky and, and hidden and coded. It actually uses popular metaphor, popular imagery. So to readers of the time, they would have heard it and they would have gone, absolutely, I get it. But the, like I said earlier, it's so rich with imagery that it's quite hard to know where the symbolic begins and ends, where the polemic, polemic begins and ends. It's a little bit like cartoons today. Here's a cartoon, which you will all be able to understand. It's, it's Donald Trump, and he's serving up a golden eagle on a plate to a bear. And you could imagine this in the book of Revelation, couldn't you? You kind of go, oh. And you kind of read it and go, oh, well, it's in the Bible. must be true. Look out for the bear. 
But, but we know that the golden eagle represents America. We know that the bear represents Russia. So we know what this cartoon is implying. This is the kind of satire that the book of Revelation employs. Here's another one from this week. It's the Houses of Parliament, and it's turned into a gentleman's club. We know exactly what that means, don't we? This is the news this week, and this is a little bit like the book of Revelation. It uses imagery that everyone understands, and then it, and then it breaks in with a different story. It is incredibly important to know um, what kind of language you're reading. This is, this is part of our problem. So if we're reading um, something that's prophetic, we need to know that it's prophetic rather than something that's literal. Um, I, I did a gap year. In fact, I did two gap years. And in order to fund this gap year, um, I did a bit of gardening. And uh, just so you know, I am... In fact, we've just finished our garden and my father-in-law did almost all of it because I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, I thought, gardening, how hard can that be? I'm going to offer some gardening service, services to, um, to raise some funds. So I stood up in front of um, the church that I was going to at the time and I explained I was going to do this gap year. And I said, um, so in order to raise funds, I'd like to come and help you out in your garden. But I thought, that doesn't sell it enough. So I thought, I'm going to... You know, I'm just going to employ a little bit of humour. I'm going to tell them a story. So I said, I very much consider myself to be the next Alan Titchmarsh. And I, talk, I spoke about how I was passionate about, um, about gardening. And people, the response was amazing. Kind of afterwards, people kept coming up to me, asking me to do their gardens. I got all these bookings. And I went round to the first garden. It was this uh, a lady. And, um, and I'm thinking, right, I need the lawn because I can chop grass, I can pick up leaves, but that's about it. Anyway, she says, Dan, Dan, come, come look at this patch. And it was this patch about two by three metres squared between the house, a fence, and a shed. And it had no light. And she said to me, it's got no light, nothing grows here. She said, what would you, what would you plant? <laughs> what would I plant? I'm just here to pick up the leaves. Anyway, then, so, so that was awful. I also, during that visit, I also destroyed a new potato crop. I won't tell you about that. But the, the, the crowning moment was when um, I turned up to this house, uh, a doctor's house. It's a massive, beautiful house. And he had a great big front garden and a huge back garden. Um, and, and I was at the house for kind of two or three days. It was quite a big job. And on the last day, he said, Dan, um, we would quite like some more light in the front of the house. And he said, is there anything you can do? I said, leave it with me. So he went off to work. And I thought, crikey, some more light into the front of our house. How are we going to do this? And I realized that there were quite a few trees in the front of the garden. So I thought, I'm, going to, I'm just going to chop one down. So I chopped this tree down. And then I had that moment where you just go, that, that was just a monumentally stupid decision. I haven't asked him whether I can chop this tree down. And this, it was this huge, great tree. And there was no putting it back up. You can't put a tree up once you've chopped it down. So I, I was terrified. Um, so then I rang a friend, a friend called Tim. I said, Tim, you've got to come round because I've chopped this guy's tree down and you know it's the wrong thing to have done. So Tim came round and then we went out and we bought loads of garden sacks and then we chopped this, it was a full tree. We chopped this tree up into tiny bits and just hid it in hundreds of sacks <laughs> and then I never returned. But my point is this, you need to know what kind of language people are using. Because had he known that I was using humour, then he would still have all of his trees. It's really important to know that because it can leave you into a sticky situation, can't it? If you take humour 
as if you take it literally, you will end up treeless or in a worse situation. And that's why it's really important to understand what we're, what we're dealing with here, what, how revelation is using language, the metaphors and the imagery and, this, and this, the symbolic nature of it. Another way, I, I would like to play you a clip now, um, a sound clip. Um, because without the pictures and without the context, the, the context that gives us the pictures in our minds, it's really hard to imagine what John was getting at. Because when it says, I saw a beast and he looked like that, or he says, this is Jesus and he's wearing a white robe and a golden sash and he has a sword in his mouth, you kind of go, what the, what the hairy heck is he talking about? It's, it's really hard. It's a little bit like, have you ever listened to a film with descriptive audio? Have you accidentally turned descriptive audio on before? And you're, it's just like, what's going on here? I did it the other night. I, Ruth went to bed early. And I thought, I'm going to watch a film. And I don't know how I did it, but I clicked on this film. And then it said, a sun is rising between two mountains. What's going on here? And then it said, a train is whizzing along the train track. And then I thought, I'm just going to go to bed because I can work out how to turn it off. But it's exactly like that. Listen, listen to this. A carrot-nosed coal-eyed snowman shuffles up to a purple flower peeping out of deep snow. Ooh, hello. <laughs> he takes a deep sniff. His nose lands on a frozen pond. A reindeer looks up and pants like a dog. Seeing the reindeer slip on the ice, the snowman smiles and moves towards him, though actually he's running on the spot. The reindeer falls on his chin. The snowman uses his arm as a crutch. The reindeer paddles his front legs. Head over heels, the snowman crawls along the ice. The reindeer does the breaststroke. The snowman rolls his body but flips onto his back. The reindeer's tongue sticks to the ice. The snowman hurls his head, twig arm and reindeer lips, tug at the carrot. The carrot flies off and lands in soft snow. The reindeer goes after it with snowman and his body parts hanging on his tail. The snowman puts himself back together again and glumly contemplates his noseless state. The reindeer jams the carrot back in place and pants like a proud puppy. The snowman pats him with his stick-thin arm, then goes to sneeze. He grabs his nose with both hands. His head shoots off. There we go. Do you all know what was going on there? This, this is a popular film as well. This is like one of the highest grossing films ever. Do you know what was going on? It was all, it was all described to you. You, you. you don't need more context. Does anyone know where, what it was from? It was from Frozen. Have, have you all seen Frozen? No, as those of you who have not seen Frozen, do you feel like you know the film now? There's no need to see it, right? No? Let me show you the clip. This is what we just listened to. <laughs> Hello.
There we go. You see, pictures and context change everything, don't they? If you hadn't seen the film but you listened to that, that descriptive audio, you would have no idea that this is what was going on. You'd think it was quite menacing, but it's actually a little bit of fun. And that is why our job of interpreting Revelation, understanding the symbols and the imagery is so important. Um, I, I'm going to get, get on to our, our verse in a minute. Um, or the, the reading, which actually isn't too important for this morning because my point is simply pointing out the job that is, that is at hand. Um, for those of you who don't know, the, the, the second and third chapters, which are right near the <laughs> second and third, are right near the front of the book, um, for those of you who can't count, um, the, the second and third chapters of the book are letters written to churches. Um, and you can read through them, and it's kind of like standard amount of revelation trippiness. And it's just like, well, I don't really know what's going on here, but, you know, let's go with it. But actually, if you begin to understand some of the imagery, some of the things that were going on, the context, I've explained some of what John was living through. If you can begin to tease that out and understand it, you can see revelation in a whole new light. Um, so towards the end of the first letter, which is to the, the church in Ephesus, it, it talks about a garden. It talks about God's garden, about a paradise with a tree. And you, kind of, you can brush over that. You kind of go, oh, right, it's a tree, it's a garden. It's kind of, these are metaphors that the Bible employs regularly. It's nice, we'll, we'll just move over that. But if you lived in Ephesus, you knew that there was a, a temple to uh, Diana um, and her Greek... Her, her name before that was Artemis, the, the temple of Artemis. And the temple had a huge garden. It was a beautiful garden. And in the middle of the garden was a tree. And the tree was, was a sacred tree. In fact, it was a shrine. And there was a myth around it. There was, it, it, was, it was said to be magical. And if you were um, a criminal, if you had done something wrong, if you got close enough to the tree, then all of your, your wrongs, would be kind of scrubbed away. You'd be acquitted from anything that you had done wrong. And so all of a, all of a sudden, when John says towards the end of the, the letter to the church in Ephesus, God has a garden, a paradise with a tree in. They go, hey, that's just like here. We've got a garden with a tree in. But it talks about God's justice. And all of a sudden, it, it's illuminated to us. This is, this is what Revelation does. This is probably why John wrote it over so long, because it's so dense, it's dripping with this incredible imagery. I do want to talk about um, um, the next, uh, the reading that we had just a little bit, um, that describes Jesus, probably in a way that you've never heard him described before. Um, it talks about the, the tongue with um, a, a double-edged sword. It talks about fire in his eyes. Um, but it starts, I'll, I'll just go through some of the things that, that I could work out. It starts by saying that, that John turned around because he heard a sound like trumpets. Can you remember that bit? That was in the first bit of the, that's in chapter 10 of Revelation. Um, sorry, verse 10 of chapter 1. It says there's a sound like trumpets. And so John spins around to see who's coming. And that, if you're Jewish, you go, hey, 
I know who sounds like trumpets. That was God when he descended onto Mount Sinai, which is Exodus 19.19. And he descends and his voice is like trumpets. And so if you're a Jew, you're going, I know who this guy is. I know who's behind John. It's God because he sounds like trumpets. That's, this is the imagery. It's, it, it's all obvious. And then John says, it was the son of man. This again is more... Um, uh, apocalyptic or a messianic language that he borrows from the book of John. I told you he was a Jew. He knows his scripture through. Um, so he says, so he's using son of man, which is messianic language. So he's saying he's the son of God. This is the guy. And then he stands in the middle of the, of the, of the, the candles, which represent the church. So it's saying our authority, he's writing to all the churches and he's saying, remember, our, our authority is Christ. This is who we serve. This is who we gather around. And it says that Christ holds in his hands seven stars. Did you, you heard that bit? You, you might know a little bit about um, numbers in, in, in scripture. You, you might have picked up on the fact that there's an awful lot of threes, quite a few fours, lots of sevens, lots of twelves, and the multiples of that. That's because um, the number three... I think it's on the next slide. The number three represents completion and the number four represents creation. The, and this was, this was a cross-culture. This isn't just a biblical thing. This is, this is just something that everyone knows. And so God's number, which is seven, who can work it out? Who can do the math? Three plus seven. I beat you all. Three plus seven, seven. That's God's number. Sorry, three plus four. <laughs> Damn it. Three plus four is seven, God's number. And it, it just means that God is above all. He's, he's got all. He's in control. What other numbers can you make from that? Three times four, 12. The 12 tribes. It's a number that's repeated and repeated and repeated. And then 144, which comes up in the book of Revelation. 12 times 12. And so... Um, seven is this important number. And Domitian, who's the emperor, he had a son who died. And he had this coin minted in his son's honor. Domitian is the guy on the left on the, the face of the coin. And the, the tail side is his son, who here kind of appears a little bit like Jupiter. And he's sat on the earth. And around him, you can count them. There's seven stars. So he's saying, my boy is like, he's gone to be a god. He's gone to the heavens and he's looking down on you. But then, in the book of Revelation, John says, I saw Christ. I saw him and he held in his hands seven stars. So what's he saying? And it might be, it might be that he's simply appealing to the same symbolism. And he's, it, he's not having a dig at this. He's, it's not polemic, but it's using the same symbolism, isn't it? But I think it was... It was absolutely polemic. He's saying, the mission's son isn't God. The mission's son doesn't hold them. Christ holds them. And they're not around him. The stars are not around him. He holds them in his hand, in his right hand, which, which is um, symbolic of power. So it means he's got a tight grip on the stars. He's got a tight grip of, of everything. He's in control. And Domitian, he's not the moral guide. He's not censor. Remember, who's in the middle of the churches? Christ. Christ is our moral guide. 
and it goes on. The book of Revelation goes on like this. It is so awesome. If you've got time, you need to check it out. The white robe and the golden sash, which we kind of go, hey, that's trendy. trendy. Maybe it's going to come back sometime soon. That's, if you were a ruler, if you, had, if you held a position of authority, if you were a priest, that's what you'd wear. So it's saying Christ is our high priest. Christ is in control. Christ is the one we look up to. This is all of the imagery that we, that we have to un- unravel. And so I think I've made my point, really. My point is, um, let me just check. My point is that we need to unravel the book of Revelation. It's symbolic, but we shouldn't be afraid of it. What John was doing, he was writing to the persecuted church. He wasn't writing to the persecuted church about the end of the world that you have to imagine. It's beyond imagination, so we use these confusing, this confusing imagery. He was writing to the church about the end of the world that they were living through. And he was looking forward with hope. And he's saying, all of this that we're living through, all of this turmoil and persecution, we all know people who have been murdered, who have been carried away as slaves hold true because remember who our God is remember who we put our who are who we put our faith in now there is very quickly there is actually some stuff that is coded in the book of Revelation um some well 666 which we've actually touched on here before 666 is the mark of the beast it means something it's it well it's symbolic but perhaps um, in, in the way that Revelation is so rich and like you have to kind of go through the layers and rich imagery can mean so many different things. It's like a piece of music. Music can conjure so many different emotions and ideas. It's like that and it can unlock different things in us or in different people. But 666, you've, um, we, we've said before, perhaps one, un, one way of understanding it is God's number, which we've looked at again today, is seven. Well, the beast number is 666. It's always six. He's never quite God. He's never there. He always falls short. That's one way of looking at it. And it's, it's a fantastic way of looking at it. There, there are loads of other theories. Some of them are quite bonkers. There's one, um, you know how in Roman numerals, different letters have a different value. So, so I is one, V is five, X is 10, and the others, M, L, D, which we shan't go into. Um, they all, and C, they all have these different values. Well, that was true for the, um, the Hebrew alphabet as well. And when you wrote um, Nero Caesar, remember Nero is the guy they feared above anyone else because he persecuted the church. When you write Nero Caesar in Hebrew and add all the letters up, it comes to 666. And I'm not saying that we should look for 666 everywhere, but perhaps it was one way that they wrote about Nero and wrote about the state in a way that they could disguise it because he's living in persecution, he's living in fear and he doesn't want to name the state because he knows what will happen. He's seen it, he's seen his friends carried away. So perhaps that's what it means. Another bit which we can very easily unpick, um, towards the end of the book, chapters 17 and 18 I think, it talks about Babylon and the destruction of Babylon. Well. Remember, this is the book of Revelation, Apocalypsis, looking forward. Babylon was destroyed a thousand years before John was writing. So it's like, oh, wake up, John, not great. <laughs> not a great prophecy. So we can, we can quickly understand what he's doing there. He's simply switched out Rome 
for Babylon. And his point is, in the same way that Babylon ruled it over us, in the same way that Babylon persecuted us and destroyed, destroyed our nation, Rome is here. But remember, Babylon was destroyed. And who is not destroyed? Who was the same yesterday, today, and forever? Who can we put our faith in? God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, so, so Rome, they're the new Babylon, but they're going away. Don't take them seriously. Dig in. Remember, we are the church. This is our calling. And so what, what can this all mean to us? Martin Luther did not win. The book of Revelation was not taken out of the canon. We've still got it. So what can we, what can we learn from it? Well, I think we can learn this. I think that we can all relate perhaps to the position that, that John found himself in, where he was beleaguered, where he was oppressed, where he was up against struggles that he could not beat. And, I, and, I, and I, I know that John was living through awful times and we are all privileged. We are not persecuted. We're all privileged in a way that he was not. But we all struggle. We all come up against so much struggle and it's nuanced now and there's pressures to be people who we can't be and to have things that are unattainable to look a certain way to be a certain way and it's this endless relentless pressure and it's pressure that the empire of the day capitalism and consumerism puts upon us I think we can look back at this book Revelation and we say you know what that's what the empire says but my faith is in Christ. This is my big picture. My moral guide, the center of the stars, is Christ. This is my guide. And I think if we're up for a challenge, we can ask ourselves a harder question. We can ask ourselves, what is worth being persecuted for? What battles would we fight if it meant facing persecution? As I said, I think we, we are incredibly privileged and that's a great thing. But we live in a world that thrives on injustice and thrives on persecution. There are children who spend their lives picking cacao so that we can have cheap chocolate. Are we willing to fight that battle? Does Christ, our center, our moral guide, push us to the edge of that battle? Would we be persecuted? Would we fight the persecution? I would love to say yes, but when it comes down to it, we all just like cheap chocolate too often. And we live in a world where, I told you earlier, there's girls who are denied an education because they cannot afford a sanitary towel and they don't have a toilet to change. They're persecuted and we have extraordinary wealth. Is our faith worth fighting that battle? Would we stand with those people who are persecuted? John says, guys, get stuck in. This is the battle. All of this crap that's going around, the crap that you face, the crap that other people face, but we are called to this message, this message of hope. This is the church. And when it gets tough, we've got to, we've got to get stuck in. That is, I think, the message of revelation and I think it is the most hopeful and brilliant message 
It's not the book of Revelation that is damning and downcast. It's a message of hope. Look at the world outside. It's a tough place. But remember, God is the same yesterday and and forever. Is that not good news? That, that, was, that was not a hypothetical question. It is good news. It's awesome news. And it means that we can ground ourselves in Christ. That's awesome news. The challenge is, so what? So what are we going to do? Do we believe it? John says, stand firm in the battle. Let me pray. Um, and then I'll hand over to Kate. Father, I thank you for this extraordinarily confusing book of Revelation, this book that has confused your church for 2,000 years. And I thank you for the way that it can speak to us afresh even now. And as we look at the world and the world leaders and we are almost overcome with dread and fear, we can look to the book of Revelation which says, chin up because I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are our censor. You are our authority. And so I pray for each person in this place. I pray that no matter what their struggle, no matter what battle they're facing, whether it's things that have come up in the news this week, sexual exploitation, whether it's not being appreciated, whether it's financial, Whatever it is, Father, remind us that you are for us and it is, on, it is in your church that we rest. It's in your promise. And Father, I pray that you would disturb us to recognize that though we may not face persecution, there are those who absolutely do. And if we are standing in your church, then I think we have an obligation to stand with them. Show us what we can do to stand with those people. Amen.